0: Kevin Driscoll, that's a name that's well-known to many of us, um, not least because he is one of us, having graduated, (laughs) as you can see, um, comparative media studies master's program in 2009. Um, We're pleased to have him around Boston again so that we can tap him for events like this, and previously for a bit of PhD career advice. Um, Speaking of PhDs, Kevin received his from USC, um, where he did his dissertation tracing the popular history of social computing um, through the dial-up bulletin board systems of the 1980s and 1990s, a topic that's suspiciously like what he'll be telling us about today. This um, talk will, according to the abstract that was circulated, map out the generative conditions that gave rise to amateur computer networking at the end of the 1970s and trace the diffusion of BBSing across diverse cultural and geographic terrain during the 1980s. Um, in his dissertation, Kevin takes a deep dive into the history of and technology and c- sort of culture of bulletin board systems and their users in an attempt to reframe, I guess I would, I would say, um, the history of the Internet away from ARPA and Licklider and a sort of highly structured national enterprise towards something that takes into account the great impacts that amateur and hobbyist users had in the development of the Internet and its sort of social systems as we know them today. Um, Kevin is now at MSR where he continues his techno-cultural research. Um, He's also working on a manuscript based on his dissertation, but um, oriented around the theme of the prehistory of social media. And he's designing a series of pedagogical tools that combine um, machine learning and communication studies through the process of data mining yourself, which is something I'm sure he'd be happy to answer some questions about after the talk. We're so pleased to have him here today to share his work with us. Please join me in
1: welcoming Kevin Driscoll. I have a question. I haven't said a word yet. Is is this a record? Yeah, let's see. Not the most substantive question you could have asked. Is there anybody who knows how to do this? I see chalkboard books. How's that? Or maybe... This. How's that? Very good. Can you all hear me? Can you hear me in the back? It's hard. This room is like a funny tunnel. So I'm really excited to be here for many reasons, some of which you can probably imagine. But there is an interesting looping back to me sitting in the room and listening to other people speak and trying to figure out how to conceptualize projects and how to do research and like where a CMS person fits into the world of scholarly work. Like, what do we learn as CMS students that we can then take into what I conceived of as more rigidly structured disciplinary spaces like COM, although I was quickly disabused of that notion by people who are in things like sociology and history. Um, But I think one thing that we bring when we do communications uh, research from a CMS perspective is an attention to the boundaries and the edges and the little nooks and crannies where other literatures and other perspectives might creep in. And so we also are fond of asking ridiculously tricky questions. So here's a question that drives our time today, which is, where did the Internet come from? And in order to answer that question, you would have to have a pretty clear idea of what you mean when you say the Internet. And I suspect that if we were to poll everybody in the room, we would have a variety of different, sometimes contradictory, sometimes incompatible, sometimes overlapping definitions of the Internet. Now, what I know about the Internet is that it matters a lot. Because when you ask people about Internet use, they will tell you that it matters a lot to them. Internet use, whatever that means, we'll leave it open-ended for a minute longer, is interwoven with people's everyday lives, all their activities. And they will tell you if you ask them. So, of internet users, nearly half say that it would be very hard to impossible to give up. And if you generalize by looking at the data, that means one in four of people in America say this. So, internet matters. That's true. And here's what I think we mean when we talk about the internet. All the things that we do with it. So, my guess is that you probably can't read that in the back. But this is... this. Uh axis right here is percentages. So these, this is from the Pew Research Center data, asking people what they do when they go online. And I've like collapsed some of that data here to focus on the practices that they mention. What are the things that they do with the internet? When they say internet use, what are the uses that they're talking about? And the things that you see are researching their hobbies, looking up information about the news... Arguing about politics, getting health data, dating, finding jobs, figuring out how to fix something in their houses. All the things that people mention when they talk about the Internet are things that happen at this cultural level. It's things that they do with it, that the Internet facilitates, that it enables them to do. And yet, in spite of how deeply woven it is into people's everyday lives and all these different areas of activity, by and large, like, we collectively do not know very much about how it works, where it came from, what are the different components technically or politically that make it up, and that gets to the place like this where you a know, pretty overwhelming majority of the users of the internet, people who self-identified as internet users, wouldn't be able to distinguish reliably between internet and World Wide Web. They would just say that they are essentially the same thing. And this is constant across ages, too. So this isn't a story about generations. Young people are just as likely to have these ambiguous understandings of what they mean when they talk about Internet as older people. In fact, we're starting to see some information that suggests that even the term Internet is falling out of use. Okay. But I'm approaching this from a historical perspective. I asked at the beginning, where did the Internet come from? So we know the internet matters. People tell us that it matters, and they tell us all these different things about it. And they must have some idea where it came from. So really, if you press people and ask them, okay, where does it come from? Just tell me where you think it comes from. They would be able to give you some kind of story. And there's lots of different stories. And the stories that they tell matter a lot. So this is where this kind of CMSE perspective comes in, which is we can look at those stories no matter how truthy they are or counterfactual they might be, and then think about what, what comes forth from that. If that's what you think, if that's what you think is the origin of the Internet, then what does it mean for you when you're doing all those things that are on that list, when you're sending emails to your family or something? How, did the, how does the origin story play in here? And we've been lucky recently to have opportunities to see this. So in the discussion, hello, hello. In the discussion of uh, net neutrality, of how we should regulate the internet, what you see are key figures in a particular kind of hagiography, hagiography of, of internet history, who are invited to speak about how the internet ought to work, how it ought to be regulated and governed. And when they do speak, whether it's in a blog post or giving testimony, they will always remind you of their place in a particular historical setting, in a particular narrative. So here you can see I've highlighted the part of this opening sentence to a blog post that appeared on the on the Google blog, but authored by Vince Cerf, where he reminds you, "When my colleagues and I proposed the technology behind the internet, blah 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 blah." So from a rhetorical point of view, you remind your listener you are like recalling a particular history, a narrative that they might not even have, but you're saying, "Come on, this is common knowledge. I'm the guy." And so here, listen to what I've got to say. And this is not unique. So we see it over and over in this conversation. When I invented the web, blah, 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 blah. So, okay, origin stories matter. And the place to start if you're going to do work like this is to ask about what is what is that story that these guys are referring to? Because clearly they have some consensus within themselves about how the story is shaped and, and who figures into it. And uh, Tom Streeter called that the standard folklore. He said, yeah, if you look out there, there's kind of a a way of telling the story. It has certain actors, certain dramatic moments, conflicts that are storied, that are told over and over, and that forms something of a folklore. And so it has some basis in the experience of certain people from certain perspectives, but we shouldn't assume that that is a universal history. So here is an image that I throw up here. And I'm not going to spend too much time on it because this is a little bit of a side quest from our main story right now. But in the process of doing a dissertation, you have lots of side quests. And so on this one, I wanted to know about this standard folklore question. So here I've picked three uh, representative texts that were from a corpus of texts that I looked at. And the reason I choose these to share with you is because they really represent the best, the most widely read scholarly and popular books these are regularly in print you can easily get them at libraries if you were a high school student who's going to write about where the internet came from and you went to the town librarian they may give you one of these two books and then this example is you'll see dated 1993 before the commercialization of the net and this was a a magazine fantasy and science fiction that published a column by multiple different people and One of those authors is science fiction writer, Bruce Sterling, and he had begun historicizing the net, as he was calling it at the time, before most people could even get on it. So this column here, you'll see these numbers refer to uh, concepts, and and as a way to explain this in, in shorthand, they are proper nouns, events, or institutions, or people. And so this overlap is showing how different ways of telling the story have certain features in common. So this kernel in the middle, that this little chunk right here where they all meet, that's the seed of the standard folklore. And as I add more text to this, that thing more or less stays constant. You have certain figures, certain events, that they are there. So this notion of the standard folklore that Tom Streeter detected, we can see empirically how it is continually renewed over time. That as the story is told, with years passing in between it, There's certain characters, certain features that come back around and around. So if we go back to this origin story, this one represented by the standard folklore, we can kind of pull out some characteristics. Here I'm referring to it as the ARPANET origin story. Now, show me with your thumbs. If you are not familiar at all with this origin story, you would put your thumb all the way down. If you know it super well and you could stand up here and tell everybody, then you would put your thumb all the way up. So give me a sense of your familiarity with the story so I can use my time wisely. All right, cool. So in the standard way of telling this origin story, and this is where we w- what we would see if we looked at those different tales, what you see is the development of this really interesting research network that brought together people from industry, from academia, from the military, who were doing computer networking research And they were particularly interested in building robust networks that could connect machines that were using different operating systems, different communications, hardware, and infrastructure that could communicate over long distances, that would be reliable. And they developed kind of like the protocols and the technological habits that continue to undergird the global internet today. And so this table tells us a little bit about the cultural and technological characteristics of that milieu So we can see their host machines, that's the ones that are hosting the services and the content on the network, those tended to be mini computers or mainframes. So you can imagine at at MIT there are time-sharing computers, like one computer with a room that has a bunch of terminals attached to it, and so that would be like a host. And that one computer would be very expensive, and it would require significant expertise to manage. The clients in this context are either what we would call dumb terminals, meaning not really computers, like a screen, a keyboard, and some communications hardware, or they are workstations that are used also by, say, uh, a physicist who needs to be able to model things uh, ad hoc. And all of these folks share a certain kind of political economy. The money that pays for all of this hardware, and probably their food and rent also, it comes from grants, it comes from their salaries that they get from universities. It kind of comes from a similar pot. And likewise, they often have a social relationship that exists outside of this research. So it's like the people you see at conferences every year, the people that you read their journal articles that you reviewed. Like There's a kind of social homogeny that exists here that enables and facilitates this research. It's critical to getting the work done But it also means that when you go online on this network, you're not expecting to encounter much difference. You go online there and you kind of know who's there because you've met them before. Like behind the handles, it's like, oh, that guy, like I saw his paper, it was okay, whatever. Like you have some kind of fallback uh, social relationship. That's kind of different than the way that I experienced the web and that I have for a while. When I go online, I tend to experience a lot of difference, contacts with strangers, with people from backgrounds that are unknown to me. So I'm not seeing my social relationships necessarily reflected in this community. All right. So we've said a little bit about what's missing. Mm -hmm. Political economy, sociologically. We kind of have some dimensions through which when we look at this, we don't really see the internet of today. One dimension that we do see it is the technological dimension, so similar protocols and, and, and habits. But we really don't see the kind of the social shape that we experience today there. And we definitely do not see all of these popular culture activities there. So you wouldn't use the ARPANET to email with your parents because they are not there. <laughs> you wouldn't be able to use it to buy tickets to the movies because the movie theater is not there. You couldn't use it to provide customer support for your small business because commercial activities are not allowed. So here again, the at the layer of practices and culture, we it's not a satisfying origin story for us. It's robust and it is rich when it accounts for institutional and technological contributions, but it's very thin on the side of culture. So where is popular culture? Because you can't write a book about the early internet and not write about culture. And indeed, when we look at the best books about internet history, they do their best to account for this. So one key uh, recurring component of the standard folklore is that the design of this early network, the ARPANET, was to enable researchers in one institution to access very expensive computing resources somewhere else. And you can see from a, a government point of view why that would be desirable. Like you just gave millions of dollars to University of Illinois, to put together a supercomputer, and you're like, well, it'd be pretty good if university researchers at other locations could use that computer. So the justification for the network is really clear. But in practice, what happened is that everybody used it to exchange emails, which is kind of funny because it's a really expensive way to have email, even at the time. And one of the most popular uses for email is not one-to-one communications, but many-to-many email forums or listservs, mailing lists. So a recurring story in the standard folklore is about this, the first email list to focus on popular culture, the SF lovers. I, get, I would never have thought of this anywhere else, but were there people in this room that were members of the SF lovers? I feel like I always got have to ask because one time there was somebody who was and I was like, okay, gotta watch my words. So here's an email, obviously you're not going to read this email, but this pull quote in the middle that I've made quite large puts a real fine point on the place of popular culture in the ARPANET. It was in hiding. It was not really a good idea to talk too much about the SF lovers, and it, which was so unfortunate, because if you look at the archive of this this mailing list, people are thrilled at the chance to talk and debate about the issues being raised in science fiction. During a real golden era of, of science fiction, a period of time where people are bringing in new ideas and new voices, they want to talk about it. People are like, dying to talk about it. And they're saying, like, "Oh, wouldn't it be great if we could give an account to this author? He lives in the town with me. I could teach him how to use it. Or maybe we could um, print out the, some of the best messages and make a fanzine and distribute it at this convention. And this person, who is one of many who says this, is like, uh, folks. No, we cannot do that, because if the people in Congress, who are currently in the process of dismantling all public institutions under the Reagan administration, hear that we're using the ARPANET to talk about science fiction, they are going to stop funding the ARPANET. So, zip it. And when new infrastructures and new networks became available to support this kind of activity, everybody moved. The SF lovers group, the community persisted, but it stopped using the ARPANET as its communication infrastructure because of a political economic characteristic of that early network. All right, so I think I've got you convinced that the ARPANET is a really good story for telling us about technology and interesting ways that groups come together to build them, but it doesn't tell us too much about culture. So where else do people go? You know, if we're polling people, where did the internet come from? The other place that they will tell you is Silicon Valley. So... Again, I was lucky doing this project that I had an event occur where people expressed their counterfactual beliefs about the history of the internet. And this was the death of Steve Jobs, where thousands of people thanked him for creating the internet. (laughs) And even President Obama stops it just like a a hair short of saying the same when he says that Steve Jobs individually made the information revolution accessible and fun. in these moments, people are revealing some of their counterfactual history, and it kind of made sense. For some folks, they think, like, okay, Bay Area, yeah, there's, like, some cultural stuff going on there, and people value their sort of, like, a egalitarian culture, and that's kind of, like, how the web works. So, yeah, it makes sense. However, if we actually look at what products and services were being bought and sold in the time, if you purchased an Apple computer, it did not come with any communications devices or hardware. That was an additional purchase and kind of like a hard sell. So for example, um, this is a, this is the packaging for the modem for the Commodore 64, which was a very affordable home computer at the, of the time. And you can, I'll, I'll pass this around so you can see, but they're trying really hard to figure out how to market this. It's very hard, it's a chicken and the egg problem because in order for the network to be valuable, there have to be people already on the network that you want to talk to. So how do you get the people on the network? I mean, what we find is it's a real word-of-mouth kind of thing, which is like you go to your friend's house, they're already on, they show you, then you are convinced to get a modem. And so it, for on the popular culture level, it spreads in a real person-to-person way. So if we're not talking about modems and their absence, then we're kind of mischaracterizing this period. And it raises yet another interesting historical question, which is, If you went to the Apple store today and you bought a device and you found out that it cost extra for it to have Wi-Fi, it would be like a preposterous thing. It would be like it costs extra for your car to have brakes. The communication features are defining characteristics of how we imagine networked personal computing today. But they were not at this time, as evidenced by the fact that none of the major home computer brands shipped with communications hardware by default. So I'll pass this around, you can take a look. So, okay, not ARPANET, not Silicon Valley, where can we go? And this is really my intervention. This is where the project begins to turn, take a turn for the historical. My argument here is that if you want to know, if you want a rich origin story for all of these popular culture practices, the place that you need to go are the small grassroots bulletin board systems that dotted North America during the 1980s. Tens of thousands of systems run mainly by volunteers and hobbyists out of their homes or the offices of their small businesses, church basements, or by after-school clubs. This is the place where people first started to encounter difference, that they were arguing about politics, or they were experimenting with online dating, or e-commerce, or all the defining activities of the contemporary social web. And this is sort of how I conceptualize this kind of big, messy project. We want to know the role of computer hobbyists. Like, what are the material contributions that they made to building the networks that we come to think of as the internet? And then we also want to know the implications of this story. If you restore this story, and this story had as much of a prominent place in the popular imaginary as the ARPANET story, what would that mean for us politically? What new political possibilities would become available. So here's how I did it. The first thing is that there's a reason that people haven't done this work already. And it's not because it's not interesting. Because almost every uh, historical book about the internet will mention bulletin board systems along the way. Because everybody knows it matters. The problem is that it it was institutionally not very highly valued. In other words, From the perspective of somebody who has access to those awesomely powerful military-funded machines, it's just not that interesting to look at dial-up bulletin board systems. So the folks that are leaving behind a lot of traces that are well-organized and placed in archives and libraries, those folks just weren't messing with these systems. In fact, there's evidence from when bulletin board systems got really big, they would have conventions and invite uh, folks who are kind of like big computer networking researchers to come speak and the people would admit they had never called the bulletin board system 10 or 15 years after they had become a dominant form of hobby networking. So That's one problem. Another problem is that the key thing that we care about, which is the messages, the, the chats, the files, the things that people were actually doing on the boards were highly ephemeral. So even if you wanted to collect it, it was really hard to collect it. People didn't have the storage media needed They just didn't didn't have big hard drives. It was really costly to like print out messages and it's hard to know what would have been worth keeping. Like now we want to know the everyday experience of a bulletin board, but from the contemporary moment of looking at the bulletin board system as a system operator, how do you choose which messages are worth saving and not? And indeed when I look at the code of the bulletin board system host software, often it had like a set number of messages that could be stored. And when you got to the last one, it just went back and wrote over the first one. And so the histories were being written over by the very activity. Like the more lively the board is, the more likely it is that we don't have a record of all that went on there. So we've got a challenge. But fortunately, the same kind of popular culture, the same technical cultures that we're interested in documenting have also grown to include a kind of amateur preservationist activity. So this is a snapshot from a ham radio swap meet. And there are ham radio swap meets in most big cities. There's one at MIT on the campus. And this is a place where a distributed archive of hobby technology comes together. It's where it is manifest. And so there are no finding aids, and there's no easy indexes for us to use. But when we go to these places, we meet people with expertise and experience and excitement who have an interest in finding and preserving these sorts of materials and so in a way this is these are the kinds of archives that i have to work with and i presume some of you soon will work with when you see how important and interesting this research is and this is reflected also in online spaces where people build websites that serve as kind of uh, nodes in this distributed archive some of which are just lingering they were contemporaneous with internet uh, bulletin board systems of the 1990s, and some of which are more reflective. So if you see this uh, top left corner, the BBS mates, you're just seeing mates, that's that's a database of bulletin board systems organized by their names and their area codes, their dial-up phone numbers, and it's like in the about page for it, the person says, did you lose contact with your friends? Here's a place for you to find each other again. So there is some memory work that's only recently started to happen that we, can, that we can interface with as researchers. But the interface has some tricky ethical territory that comes along with it. It's hard to know from a researcher point of view how we relate to this distributed archive. The relationship to a library archive is a little bit more clear. But here's a picture that I took from someone's home looking at a, just a piece of the collection that they have amassed. And wh- I, when I encountered this, I was, I was feeling like I should turn away and run because <laughs> it was frightening. It was like, whoa, there's a lot of stuff here, and it is not organized, and I don't know what to do about it. And then what I learned through kind of spending time is that there are ways that these materials circulate that have labor attached to them. And so there become certain figures in this community who are bearing a very large burden, who are kind of the, they're serving a middle role between the formal collecting institutions catching up and starting to build uh, house and, and house these things and their initial production. So in the case of this person, part of the way that their collection grew so large is that they got a reputation in the community for somebody who values in preserving these materials. And other people would send them boxes, unsolicited boxes of stuff, along with notes that said things like, I know that you will take care of this. It was so important to me. I held on to it for 20 years. Just putting this incredible emotional burden on this person to be the the steward of a community's history. This is uh, another place that I visited that is full of computer ephemera. It is a storage container that was funded through the crowdfunding platform Kickstarter. And this is a picture of me inside of it where it was below freezing and we were going through all these materials. And while I was there and I was literally freezing to the point there was blood coming out of my fingers, I was thinking about materiality, sure. But also, like, what is my role in that moment? Am I just a researcher doing archival work? Because we're having conversation while we're working. There's a level of intimacy that's going on here that was unexpected to me. I didn't think of this as an interview or as an ethnographic moment. And so this is a challenge that we will have to continue to take up. And this slide is a bit of an invitation because it's, we're in a local institution. And so some of the materials that I've collected are now in a very small uh, bookshelf that's in the One Memorial Drive building nearby. And so if any of you are interested in this work, You should let me know, and you can come and visit and take a look at some of the materials that I've collected. Okay, so I described a lot of work. Some of it was mine, a lot of it was other people's. But it enabled me to put together the pieces for what I think is a pretty compelling alternative origin story. And all origin stories need to have some kind of starting moment, a context within which everything became possible. And for us, I locate that in the mid-1970s for a few different reasons, some cultural, some political, some economic, some technological. And we'll start and kind of move through. So here is our blown up snapshot of a standard telephone jack. And it may be difficult to remember if, if you can remember this far at all, but this was an innovation and it only came about through serious political intervention on the part of the government into how the telephone companies worked. It was only till the mid-1970s, if you lived in a big city, that when you, came, when you rented a new apartment, you could assume that there would be a standardized phone jack on the wall for you to plug into. Prior to that, you had to call, call somebody from the telephone company to come and wire you up. And this was part and parcel of a number of moves that were around this juncture between the period of time when t- the telephone network was a regulated monopoly and the period of time where it became deregulated. And both sides of that history are essential for creating the conditions within which dial-up bulletin boards became possible. So when we think about the mid-1970s, we think about a project that had public interest at its heart, which built an infrastructure for communication that connected almost all of the homes in the US. And not only did it connect them, it also gave us a very robust and easy to understand addressing system, which was the phone numbers. And the phone numbers are really interesting. They're not random. You have the area code and the exchange, which gives you information about how much it will cost to call that number and where on the map that number is located. So if someone gives you a phone number, you learn over time, or you can look up in a book, oh, that's in Wyoming, and this is down the street, and this costs a lot, and this doesn't cost anything. And so we got this like, really interesting system. And then through deregulation, it became possible to experiment with that network. So not only did we have a network that connected almost everybody, but it worked in a really reliable way and it was now legal for you without any prior uh, approval to just connect some new toy to it, something that you built yourself or you bought. So that's why we got fax machines and answering machines and the modem. So we've got that. But this goes by without most people noticing it. It's like somewhat more convenient, but if you're just a telephone user, it's like, okay, cool, there's now a different plug in the wall. This is more interesting, this is the poster from Smokey and the Bandit. By all rights, a massive hit in popular cinema. And if you look in the logo for Smokey and the Bandit, you see the microphone for CB radio. Also in the painting, it's very hard to see here, but with all that's going on, Burt Reynolds is still holding on to the CB radio with his left hand and a cores in his right hand as he's trucking from Texarkana, carrying all of the beer back to Texas where a big party will take place. So the CB radio has shifted amateur telecommunications from this kind of you know organized rule-based amateur radio or you know place where people are very interested in doing it right and doing it well to a pretty chaotic wild space of cowboys and truckers and muscle car drivers who are out there uh, just talking evading police trying to do all kinds of things. And the boom of the CB radio happens across multiple areas of popular culture. So there's films like Smoking the Bandit and Convoy. But there's also songs on the radio that have the sounds of the CB radio in it. So for your kind of like everyday consumer of popular culture, the notion that technologies could be used for communicating with other people at a distance in a way that's fun, that's pleasurable, and maybe a little bit subversive, is like a pretty mass idea at this time. And it's reflected in the literature of the technical hobbies. So this book is titled, Hobby Computers Are Here. And it is published by 73, which was the publisher of amateur radio books and magazines, and edited by Wayne Green, who provides his call sign. And Green was publishing columns in amateur radio magazines entreating the readers to get involved in hobby computing, saying, this makes a lot of sense. If you like radio, you're going to like computing. And then he went on to found a number of magazines, including Byte, which became one of the most widely read and distributed hobby computing magazines. So from that original moment, the connection between telecommunications, amateur telecommunications, and hobby computing was pretty clear. So here's a group of people that capitalized on it quite early. In February of 1978, there was like two friends who were members of the same computer club. And they got snowed in, and they decided to do a project. This was the the blizzard of 78 winter. And the project they conceived of was one that was similar to other projects that were getting underway by different computer clubs, but they called it CBBS, which is helpful for us because they borrow the rhetorical structure of computerization is the computer computerization of something, which was very common for the two decades prior. There had been the computerization of finance and the computerization of air travel and computerization of voting. And here, there's computerization of bulletin boards. So they kind of pair this super high-tech thing, computerization, with one of the most low-tech computer communication technologies that were, would be familiar to everyday folks. They're just the community bulletin board that's in the local grocery store or on the church that anybody can post a message on. And the messages can be all sorts of things. They could be art. They could be announcing events and other things. And they imagined a computer-based system. So the computer is just sitting in one of their homes, connected to the wall. And it invites you to come in and leave messages. And I'm very intentional with my use of the verb invite here, because they really did conceive of it almost like an open house. The callers that were calling into the bulletin board were visiting the home of Randy Seuss. And likewise, they kind of expected them to follow certain social protocol, like don't be a jerk and mess up the place. I'm welcoming you to take control of my computer temporarily. So there's this kind of like informal friendliness. And this appealed to a lot of folks who were already in little, community, little uh, networks of computer hobbyists, local computer groups, and things like that. And so quickly, bulletin board systems proliferated, particularly in uh, metropolitan areas where the area codes were large enough that you could make a lot of cheap calls. So it's actually interesting because if you're in a super dense area, they were chopping up the area codes, so you actually couldn't call as far with a a toll-free call. So you may be living in a place like this hypothetical person where you have two bulletin boards nearby, and you can have different accounts on them, different names, you can have a totally different personality. So the bulletin board system notion, this network of small networks, an internet of sorts, Gave people a lot of flexibility about how they presented themselves and how they engaged different communities. So, this is a chart, and I use this chart instead of making my own because this was made by Jason Scott, who's a well known uh, enthusiast of, of bulletin boards and also a, a documentary filmmaker who made a documentary about them. And he estimates that there are over 90,000 BBSs at peak time. But this chart also invites us to speculate because. A bulletin board system could be three friends who, just for fun, make a bulletin board system and hang out a shingle. Or it could be 3,000 people who are routinely calling in and trading software and do, doing all kinds of things. So it's another historical challenge for us to estimate just like how many people were involved in this. But it's really, I think when we, we get to this point where we can think of this as a parallel world, the there are parallel tracks here where the ARPANET is developing really robust, ways of doing internet working over long distance with various types of media. Sometimes it goes over the wires. Sometimes it goes over the airwaves. Sometimes it goes to a satellite. And at the same time, there are hobbyists who are using just the telephone network that had been in place for decades, but they're developing all this social technology on top of it, figuring out how you should moderate the system, administer it, who's in charge, who makes the rules, what are good rules, what are bad rules, how do you kick people off if they're being a jerk, how do you get more cool people to join you? All of that is happening on this kind of people's internet layer. And so we can expand our table and put them together. And we'll come back to the implications of this in a moment. But the people at the time conceived of it as this other space. And the owner owning a modem and using a modem was really a mark of distinction. So people would say, I'm a modemer. I'm not just like any computer user. I have a modem, I'm part of the modem world. I go modeming, I do this thing that's different, that's unusual. And so the modem world had certain features that would be recognizable regardless of where you happen to be in the network. One is that there were low barriers to getting involved, but also to leaving. So if you didn't like the way it was going, you could get out. And part of that has to do with political economy. There's symmetry between the hosts and the clients in these networks. So whereas in the ARPANET, the hosts are really expensive mini computers and the clients are dumb terminals in this time-sharing paradigm, on these bulletin board systems, the computer you use to call a bulletin board could be used to host a bulletin board. So there is a real parity there. And I put these numbers here to give some context for when I say that things are affordable. Because when I say affordable, I I do mean kind of a very conventional notion of what middle class 1980s America looks like. But we tend to collapse all the computers together when actually the pricing was an area of economic interest. It wasn't clear how to price these machines yet. So you can see this is the Nintendo Entertainment System, which few people think of as an elite technology. It seems like quite a populous system. And yet it was more expensive at launch than the Commodore 64, which also was a game-playing device, but had these additional affordances of being a thing you could learn to program on or or connect to bulletin boards. There were, of course, very expensive systems like the IBM PC, which traded on the business reputation of the IBM brand, and the Apple PC, which did did aspire to be this very expensive kind of elite uh, cultural product. So both of those cost as much as a used car would. Now, this low cost had caught the interest of folks who who build networks. And one group of those are political activists. So here is a book that caused some controversy upon its release among folks who hoped that BBSs would achieve some Wall Street legitimacy. The Anarchist Guide to the BBS, where the author says that the BBS is the $500 anarchy machine and specifically mentions that you should go to thrift shops or businesses that are closing and see if you can buy old machines. Seems so like the central activity you wanna do here is chatting and sharing messages with people. And he even says, amber letters read as nicely as red, blue, and purple, and a monochrome system is much cheaper. So there is this awareness that even when we do this kind of economic look at the history and look at the prices, there is a second life that a lot of machines had that's invisible from the, the industry level metrics that are available. And this low cost led to a distribution of ownership over the infrastructure. so this is a BBS that i that I came across during the my archival period of research, and this one ran for ten years on the same Apple II, but yet it was lively and it was beloved by its users and It was not interested in technical innovation, but the the four people who found it, two men and two women, were really interested in creating a system that was accessible by many definitions of the word accessible both in terms of disability and accessible to people from different social strata. And so when they realized that women who were going on other bulletin board systems where they were soundly outnumbered, this is an overwhelmingly male pursuit, they created a women's only area on their bulletin board system. And in order to enter the area, you had to be verified by a voice phone call or a face-to-face meeting with the women who were in charge of moderating the area. And in reflecting on this period of time, the uh, founder of the board said to me, like, oh, yeah, I still to this day, I have no idea what went on in that. And it's interesting for him to say that, considering that the machine was in his home. So it was, there's the disk whirring away, and there's phone calls coming in, and people are accessing this women-only area, and he cannot see it because he's locked himself out of it programmatically. And this is a system that people remember fondly because of that. And it also encouraged them to meet offline. And and so many of the people here lived around Indianapolis, and they would monthly get together for pizza parties and stuff like that. So there was a real move uh, for the online and offline distinction to be continuous. And that reflects kind of like an affordance here that's not immediately obvious, which is because of those low barriers and because there were people owning different nodes of the network and managing them differently, you had a lot more autonomy over how you behaved and how you experience this system. So when you visit the home of somebody who's hosting a BBS, there's nothing abstract about where your data is stored. You know where it is. Like, literally, it's on that brown desk in the corner of that room in that house. And I know the address. And I might have even visited it, which is such a contrast to the way that our data is evaporated into kind of like a cloud imaginary that we are hopefully thinking is is ubiquitous. There were advantages to knowing exactly where your data was stored. So you might choose to conduct certain types of communication on this node that you wouldn't on that node, and, and vice versa. And of course, this was extremely important to communities who were using these systems who were otherwise facing oppression, or were marginalized, or their communication was being suppressed in other systematic sorts of ways. So the gay lesbian BBS list, which was compiled and circulated monthly, is organized by area code so that you can easily locate a system that is near to you. And there's you can think of lots of reasons why a system that is geared towards gay and lesbian users in the 1980s, it would be helpful to know if the system is nearby. Not only is it cheaper to call, like you have an economic reason to do it, but there's also a chance that those people are dealing with conditions that are unique to that region. There may be laws in place that are not in place in other states, there may be Uh, commercials on TV that are offensive to you, and you want to talk to people that are nearby about it. So it creates this safe space to go where you know, you can assume that the other people there are facing similar regionally specific conditions as you. And so with these kind of characteristics in mind, let's go back just as a, a way to conclude and think about this recent period we've gone through of saving the internet. And... Here's an image of activists protesting outside the FCC in advance of the ruling about net neutrality rules, who are saying, keep the internet free. And of course, after listening to me gab for 45 minutes, you're asking yourselves, oh, well, what is the internet that you're talking about here? Is it the internet of bulletin board systems with all these locally specific, tightly managed, very hands-on, face-to-face types of relationships? Or is it the highly centralized, vertically integrated walled gardens that we tend to commit our very valuable, intimate communications to today? And I'm going to go one step further and show a material link that exists between these two worlds. So some of the biggest bulletin board systems that were thriving in the mid-1990s were providing some limited internet services. So you could dial in and then you could send email. Sometimes you could use what's known as slip and create a kind of IP connection so you could use Mosaic or Netscape or something like that. And what's so funny is that many of these bulletin board system operators saw that there was a potential to make money with this new information superhighway bubble. So they would create corporations and give them much more staid names. So Crazy House BBS became the first internet service provider to serve this west coast of Florida around St. Petersburg. And they definitely didn't market themselves as Crazy House when they did that. It was a business friendly ISP. And they grew through this period. And the bulletin board system stayed, but it also facilitated this internet access. So the telcos, the big entrenched telecom companies, it was not a priority to bring high speed internet access to St. Petersburg. So the guys that ran the Crazy House were the internet. There's no distinction or rhetorical moves that we have to make. They provided internet service to these communities, large communities along the Gulf Coast. And there was money in it because the big ISPs, when they decided to come in, they would see that this small grassroots ISP was already there and it made a lot more sense to buy them out. And there's lots of good economic reasons to have these huge monopolistic ISPs because they can take advantage of network externalities, and other sorts of things. But what that does, that moment of acquisition, is that it ruptures the clear material and cultural connection between the 1980s grassroots systems and the communication systems we value now. So here we are back at our keeping the internet free. And we can move forward with our activism and our advocacy with this enlarged imaginary. And we can ask for an internet that looks a little bit more like the column on the right where there's a place for community-run systems, where nodes can be operated by small and medium-sized enterprises, and where there can be more locally specific control and moderation. So I've given you this provocative picture, and let's talk about it for the time that we have left. (laughs) Questions? That's a really good question, and there's two answers. There's implicit connections, which is almost like reinventing the wheel in a way. So I think, for example, uh, Yik Yak recreates some of the regionally specific conversation that happens on a BBS, but it's not because the founders of Yik Yak used BBSs. They were children at the time that this was really thriving. That's one answer. Another answer is where people moved and they took their experiences forward, and so. There, you can see it more in the discussion of larger scale systems where, um, and in in a way, this happens more in places where the BBS period lingered longer. So for, uh, you know, I have like Google alerts for tons of keywords related to my research. And something that's really striking is that there's a lot more memory work happening among Russian language uh, computer hobbyists than among English language computer hobbyists of remembering some of the big BBS networks. And even like simple things such as putting side by side the Russian language uh, Wikipedia pages for certain big networks and the English language pages, there's just so much more memory work going on. And so what happened there is sometimes people use the exact same handles or names from their dial-up systems in a web-based forum or a subreddit or something like that. Like they have a continuous identity that hops as the infrastructures beneath them change. So yeah, there's some implicit and some explicit connections yes
0: thank
1: uh-huh. you mm this is a really good question so you know i'm interested in reddit and like we've been talking Lana and i have been talking about reddit a lot recently and um so I will share with you, like, a, so Lana, who's another CMS alum, and I have a paper that is about um, interest-driven message boards, like independent websites that people go to talk about a shared interest. It could be sports. In the case that we looked at, it was about gem collectors. And there we suggested that it was theoretically useful to imagine all web forums as a single sociotechnical phenomenon that we called the decentralized social web, And that gave us a reasonably shaped unit of analysis to compare that against something like Facebook. So what's interesting to me about Reddit is that it occupies this middle space, where to me Reddit is like economic enclosure of that decentralized activity. Where Reddit provides the tools for you to start a forum and it looks a lot like bulletin board systems. And in fact, one of the places I go to see retro computing enthusiasts talk about BBSs is on a subreddit called BBS, which is just too recursive for me to manage Uh, But there you see like that could be administered in a decentralized sort of way that would allow some of the full autonomy of this dial-up system But there is an economic reason that it is fully enclosed and owned and that's partly to centralize all the data in a common store That's accessible to only a small number of people so I can see why that is happening and I don't expect that to stop Soon, but I do expect that people will start to fragment their conversations across many different platforms, and that's not really a prediction because that already happens. That you look at your phone and you have like nine apps that you can send me a message on, and you decide in the moment, well, Kevin and I talk about sports on this app, and we talk about work on Gmail, and so I click on that and I send the message. I have many different channels, and the channels have different symbolic meaning uh, attached to them, and the messages that come through them are are shot through and laden with those meanings. So that's what I think. Yeah. When
0: we wrote the paper about the decentralized social web, we weren't really thinking about the politics that are loaded up with the word decentralization.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting like from both a critical art and technology point of view and and scholarship of the of maybe 10 or 15 years ago, people were really excited about peer-to-peer and it seemed like peer-to-peer was going to be the answer, and peer-to-peer systems are generally described as distributed, meaning like it's pulled to every node can connect to every other node. That's like a radically decent distributed system. And I'm pretty critical about my choice of decentralized, which is there are still centers. It's just that the centers happen at a much more local scale. And there are many, many more centers. And there are redundancies among the centers so that if one of them takes a turn away from your cultural values, you can opt to choose a different center. So, that, so in a way, we used to think a lot about barriers of entry. And we want to lower the barriers of entry. That was like a big concern for all media scholarship. We want to see, you know, like we went from film to video. And the barriers of entry went down with some costs associated with them. But now I'm really concerned about barriers to exit, because the barrier to exit for something like Facebook is ridiculously high. And so tons of people stay, no matter how unhappy they are with the way that the system is governed, and the poor stewardship of our public culture that happens in that place. So I want to think about systems that have lower barriers to exit, even if the barriers to entry are a little bit higher, which really is the case for some of these kinds of things. Yeah, maybe.
0: <laughs> yeah, dude. It's strange to me to see suddenly that history.
1: Yeah.
0: There is no equivalent of this kind of of interesting
1: parallel, the story of the essentially network was born by a might be a little bit about that prior historical Okay. I will entertain them both. Yes? I don't fully follow the argument that about contemporary web. Yes. Because I keep confusing what we're calling a decentralized system with what yeah. I take to be sort of anybody who owns a computer now as I belongs to many different groups. I for even in my advanced age I still play basketball, so I
0: belong to a geezer basketball
1: It's all threes. <laughs> yeah. And of
0: course, must be, there must be fifteen or twenty such groups that I myself belong hmm. hmm. hmm.
1: Hmm. That's a very good question. So the term network is generative for scholars because it has mobility across all of these different domains. And so we can imagine that any humans that lived in as densely settled communities as we do now had social networks that that proliferated the way that yours have. The difference that we face now, and this almost bridges to your other question, is that they are often inscribed in socio-technical systems in ways that they might not have been before. And so you might have met with the basketball group informally and you agree each time you meet, when to meet the next time, and share information about which, uh, you know, Bengay sub-brand is the best. And then, but now that conversation can carry through in between meetings and it leaves behind digital traces of a sort. And so there is a question then about what media you choose to use for different networks. And so that's a little bit what I'm pointing to with having the different apps and things like that, is that some of the social networks that you are engaged with will opt to use one system or another. And it does seem to me that there are cases where people's social networks have moments of breakdown or conflict over disagreements of which medium to use to have their conversations on and my interest then is more about is really more about the both technical affordances and values associated with those media and also the political economic dimensions of them and so if your basketball group is having small but not insignificant like economic externalities for this corporation that is sending its 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 profits overseas so as not to pay the taxes that will then make sure that there are nets on the the hoops at the public basketball court, that has some significance that is historically unusual. Um, So that would be one answer. The other thing about history, which I love talking about with hobbyists, because some of what drives the computer hobbyists is a sense of loss, which is like, this thing was so important, and I was part of this big network, and it was huge, and there was thousands of people there, I swear. And you will even see, like, when you start looking at, uh, say, blog posts that are about, Violations of privacy on Facebook. If it, I don't. I hesitate to say that there is a law, but I would almost predict that when the comments get above like a thousand or so, someone will eventually say, "Boy, I wish we could go back to those BBSs." Ha <laughs> ha! I bet I'm the only one who remembers that. So there's this like very unusual social memory thing that's happening with folks there, and so sometimes those, the the people that would be likely to utter something like that will be like, "Oh, we're losing it." But at least you're you're engaged in documenting it or saving it, and it's like we might be losing it, but we're losing it a lot less than people who are in disadvantaged positions of various kinds ever did before. So doing social history of computers of the eighties, it's like we got tons of stuff, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what I'm saying, is like, things that never left a trace do leave traces now. And, in fact, overwhelming traces. Um, so from the point of view of, say, like, a, if there was a professional archivist here, they would say, actually, I have a actual empirical quote. Oh, <laughs> if there were, I don't know if there were. But I, I visited another archive that was the Microsoft Corporate Archive, and the archivist there told me that, from her perspective, managing very, very large institutional archives, her biggest skill that she developed was what to throw away. Because there was like, every time they released a product, there was like 50 language versions of it. So did she need to preserve Excel for each different market that they sold it in? Or was it okay to have one version? Or should she make a digital copy of each and just save one box? Like very unusual kinds of archival questions, which are not scarcity driven, but are driven by abundance. Um, So that's from a corporate history point of view, but from a social history point of view, it's similar. It's like there's a lot of evidence, but the shape of the evidence is very unusual. And like from a, you know, I'm thinking about this in almost like a statistical way. It's like we've got these like bits of data and we're kind of trying to fit them to a curve, but we're missing all these different parts. And so an example of that is the materials that I rely on are often preserved by video game enthusiasts whose sole goal is to be able to play old games. And on the road to being able to play an old game, they may produce some knowledge or technology or software that then I can use to recreate or simulate an old bulletin board system. That was not at all the goal of that community. So if people like that become aware that BBSs are important, they may come across the software and save it. But by and large, you can go and get a a torrent that has every single Commodore 64 game known to man. But try to find all the Commodore 64 communications software, and it's a much trickier terrain. So there is some interesting stuff that goes on in terms of what gets saved. And it doesn't fit previous models of deciding what was worth saving. But it doesn't mean that it's wholly egalitarian or like universal either. So, I mean, there is a dialectic at play in the Internet at large, which is the Internet is forever, and it will embarrass you 30 years from now and it never forgets. That's like one strain of conversation. And the other strain is you can't find things twice and it's gone and there's too much stuff and it's info glut. And like these are polar opposite, like totally contradicting perspectives that people hold at once in their mind as they use the they things. Yeah, they both can be true. Yeah, very great, great questions. <laughs> yes.
0: Mm. So I was wondering if you could speak a, a bit more about how
1: community standards for behavior um were established and maintained. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, that's a good question. Well, there are so there's generations within this um BBSing community, and there was a clear period around nineteen ninety where there was like a young people, teenager, hacker land people who are sharing a lot of games and stuff. And then there's older folks who maybe had a business interest or, you know, they've been talking to the same people about uh, Doctor Who for 10 years and they didn't want to teach somebody how to use a bulletin board. So they created this, and people intuitively knew this is a board for adults and this is a board for teens. And some of the teens of the time would have said, this is boring to go to this place. (laughs) All the people here talk about their jobs or whatever. Um, however, there's like an interesting space, which people called like slam boards or flame boards or whatever, where you would just go and talk smack to each other. And it seems to have recurred across many different regional communities that teens would just like create a bulletin board system. And creating a bulletin board system can be as simple as running the software for a few hours and calling your friend and being like, okay, call me in 15 minutes, and then hanging up and starting it. And then you can talk on the board. So the the definition of like a running board is actually pretty loose. And um, there was even games and other sorts of things, like formalized games that encouraged like board versus board wars, where people almost like graffiti crews fighting with each other, like go and try to crash the other person's board and things like that. And the, I mean, it's actually a sad end to the uh, TARDIS BBS that I mentioned, was that um, there were some local kids who figured out a way that you could uh, break their bulletin board and take it offline, and it, it's almost too perfect for me to tell. I'm afraid you won't believe me that this is the story, which is that newer modems were so fast that when they cl- connected, the handshake sound confused the modem that was being used by the TARDIS BBS and would make it hang up and then crash the board. So merely like calling at it with a 9600 VPS modem would crash this board by a quirk, and at that time, the person who was running it didn't have the technical expertise or the the time to fix this problem, and kids broke it and like took it down week after week, and he even called their parents and was like, "Please like stop your child from doing this." and the parents got really mad at, at him and said "No, and then there was like threats of police and stuff, and eventually the callers assumed that the board went offline, and so they stopped calling, and that was this like petering out point for that community. Which is really sad, and it, and so there there were these things where sometimes technology and 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 social norms met in this case. So like flooding a chat room is an example of that, like just or uploading, um, you know, like disgusting pictures of of victims of crimes or something like that, where you're intentionally taking advantage of the affordances of the system in order to make it work less well for other users. Um, And there are text files that circulated that were somewhere between like an FAQ or a guide that suggested things that you might do as a system operator or moderator to um, prevent those things from happening. And like verifying callers by voice was a really common one. And in fact, later Bolton Board System Software implemented the feature, which is really neat, where it would like, you'd call in and you'd say, I'd like to become a member of this community. And you just leave your name and phone number and then when the person who ran the board came home, there'd be a queue waiting up and it's like, "Oh, these 3 people called in." And then you just call them. You're like, "Oh, yeah, I'm Jim. Yeah, the board is about video games, whatever," like, and then they would get brought in. And and people at the time didn't really speculate explicitly about this, but I think it's a reasonable assumption to make that there is something that occurs with people in a social socio social psychological way that if they've heard your voice it alters the experience rather than just coming in anonymously and like you have no orientation into what the purpose of that system is at all and there are a small number and i have them in my little library if anybody is curious about this like moderation stuff of books that are about running bulletin board systems so like this one is how to create your computer bulletin board and it's one of the first ones and it it includes a lot of of code to bring it online, but says like nothing about how to get callers or how to treat them, then within 10 years later books that came out that are like much longer and look kind of like um, they're in the genre of how to learn Java in 20 days type books, those would have all kinds of stuff about advertising and and how to charge fees. There's a ton of discussion about pricing and payment and how to receive payment and pay the bills because it wasn't a, it wasn't free to run uh, a bulletin board system and then they sometimes include things sometimes in a legalistic way and then occasionally more in a hands-on uh, social cultural kind of way on how to run a board like what it means to be a system operator beyond the technical stuff yeah yes yeah you're the one yeah <laughs>
0: Yeah. Well because I think yeah you say worldwide web, I think it's worldwide when when you're looking at the social aspect, it's not worldwide because you have bar barriers.
1: Yeah. My question so you're looking at the American Yeah. Uh, scoping it down to North America was just something I had to do to make the project manageable. And in fact, it's a very transnational story. And And kind of like I mentioned with that anecdote about Wikipedia pages, in many ways, the story is much richer in Europe and especially in Eastern Europe. And part of the reason is that uh, when, kind of like, as I understand it, behind the Iron Curtain in certain countries, telecommunications developed differently. And so there was not the same private investment in building high-speed data networks. So in the U.S., there was high-speed data networks were being built by MCI and these newly deregulated long lines uh, telecom companies. And so when it became politically feasible to interconnect the systems. It was like, the li- the wires are already on the poles, so we can do that. Whereas in other places, the early encounter of the net is bulletin board systems. So for example, it was a bulletin board system network that brought internet email to South Africa. This we know for sure. Then there is more stories that I have been having a more difficult time substantiating, but like uh, a kind of folklore among the bulletin board system enthusiasts, that there were NGOs who were in different places who were exchanging health information that was coming out of US research institutions but was not yet available in places like uh, Northern Africa for reasons of um, government censorship and surveillance. And so, in a way, the bulletin board system architecture enabled some amount of um, subversive communication because the connections are intermittent. So, if you, what, and now I'm getting into the weeds a little bit of. <laughs> what would be like a whole other hour, but there was a way of internetworking the bulletin board systems where the boards themselves would call each other. And so in the middle of the night, two boards would call and then exchange messages and synchronize their forums. And so what that meant is you could, if you were at board A, you could talk to somebody at board B without having to make that long distance call. And that technology was extended to transoceanic links. And so there were a small number of bulletin boards on the east coast of the US that made calls into Western Europe, and then the files and messages dis- dispersed. And And actually getting to uh, David's comparison, that structure, that way of making a communication network, is exactly the same as a hundred years before when amateur radio operators created transcontinental messaging networks using store and forward links, which is basically, it takes a few hops to get your message there, but the message travels across the the cheapest route. So you always want your message to go through the cheapest link. And um, there were also some wealthy people that were involved that just footed the bill. So there was a very wealthy person who was very concerned about the health of queer people and the ability of queer people in different parts of the country and in different parts of the world to get access to information about HIV and AIDS. And they used their personal wealth to call into the Department of Health and access new health uh, papers each week, and then they use their personal funds to call a whole bunch of other nodes and redistribute the information. So there is a really great story there, and I am looking forward to reading somebody else's book that is about it. <laughs> but you're totally right that uh, it's, it is tricky to talk about a thing in its global implications without losing a lot of really important detail around the edges.
0: We should have time for one or two more questions.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. mm mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. mm the main
1: that Right. Yeah. That's why this picture
0: you show is there we have grown used to the fact that the
1: Yeah. is Yeah. I just Sure, yeah.
0: decided to keep one copy
1: of every page Uh huh. very funny. Right. That's very funny. uh, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure.
0: Yes.
1: You're. I mean, you're pointing to a really interesting uh, aspect of denaturalizing the way that the technologies work now. And so you can. I think often about the smartphone as this really interesting radio that has a whole bunch of it has multiple antennas and it can transmit and receive on a surprising array of frequencies. So I can talk on Bluetooth, and I can talk to the 3G networks, and I can talk to Wi-Fi, and that's pretty wild that I can jump between those different types of radio communications. But there's no standard app in my phone that when I want to transfer something, it suggests to me the optimal medium to use in that moment. And there's no way for me to create some logics in it that would say, You know, this message, if I'm messaging with this person, wait until I'm on this type of network, because I don't want this message to go over T-Mobile. I only want it to go over the MIT network, or something like that. And so in a way, what what we're talking about is maybe detecting preferences that say, oh, you only ever message these people when you're on Wi-Fi. Should I delay them? Like, This is not a priority in terms of our design. And it isn't about Moore's Law or creating faster networks or something like that. It's about organizing the technologies that we already have in a different way so that they, when they communicate, the types of communication are reflecting some of the values of the users differently. And in a way, it does point back to this idealized uh, research network that was being developed in the 1980s that really did hope that it would work in a certain way but it, it's hard for it to have a communications network that crosses huge, vast tracts of land that doesn't involve any corporations at all, and especially politically intractable in the 1980s when we were at, in the project of creating more for-profit enterprises within the world of telecommunications. So, I mean, I love that way of the identifying the conflicts between the ideal way that the network ought to work, the way that it does, and how sometimes there can be mismatches there, but they're like they work fine, and they kind of get along fine. And it seems like that was happening for most of the early history of the internet. And the turning point really is when almost all internet users in North America sh- shifted from a mix of different ways of getting onto the internet to like just four or five different broadband internet service providers. Then we fundamentally changed what we mean by internet, and we're de-emphasizing the network. A lot of our communications never leave our internet service provider. We never actually do the inter-networking of going to other networks. We're always inside of Comcast or whatever it is. So yeah, I'm very curious about futures that have more inter-networking involved in them where I know that my communications are traveling across different kinds of networks and I have some sense of the values and purposes associated with those different communication media. Yeah, cool. Oh, sure, I guess. (laughs) Dessert. all sexting, all the time, <laughs> <laughs> exclusively sexting, yeah, I think. So yeah. That's when together, them,
0: you...
1: yeah, I mean, uh, it's very interesting to play the role of both scholar and a political activist or advocate. So from a political point of view, save the internet. Mm-hmm. I want to have net neutrality rules in place. But from a scholarly point of view, I can see that this political campaign made strange bedfellows, where I'm sitting alongside of major media corporations. That's weird. I I wouldn't have thought that that would necessarily happen. And why should the internet be neutral for television companies to send television shows to me? We already had networks and means of sending television shows around, so why is the the use of the internet for television now crowding out all of those popular culture activities that you just mentioned? Be it sexting or texting with a family member, so you know I do think that there is a way that we can operate um, on both levels. And there's expediency and instrumental, practical realities that we have to confront as uh, political actors. And then there's also theoretical dreams and imagination that we have to come into uh, bring into the picture to imagine what an ideal system would be. And in an ideal system. Um, Netflix is seen as an extension of television. It is a mass medium. It is it is not the same as point-to-point uh, communication. YouTube seems to occupy different spaces, but YouTube caters through its structures and policies to ma- entrenched mass media companies. So, And this isn't to say that... Uh, Mass media companies are bad or something like that, but they are fundamentally different political actors than individuals or nonprofit groups or church organizations. And treating them all the same seems to be a radical shift from the media the way we've managed media in the past. <laughs> sure. Um, I think sexing is extremely meaningful communication <laughs> i can't i don't know what to say about that I would not want to uh a cessation of sexual content online and it's funny I'm engaged in another project about uh, minitel which is often which is a french state run network that's often remembered as a highly censored network, but the state had no interest in the sexual activities of its users, and in fact that was the first like major uh, system for online sexual content and lots of people had really nice affairs through that I'm sure and they wrote songs about it that you could hear in the club and stuff like that so you know what I'm saying like people are going to use the media for whatever social needs that they have it could be transferring data files it could be finding somebody to hook up with those are both really important valuable uses so I don't know what will come from that
0: all right, well, let's
1: Thank Kevin again. Oh, okay. Thanks.